Hey, stranger! The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Coming up you'll get to hear my chat with a writer. And he's not just any writer, folks. He's one of my favorite writers, Paul Tremblay. Paul writes books that I guess it's fair to classify as horror, but that feels a bit reductive to me. They are scary and intense and all of the things that you expect from horror, definitely. But his writing is so moving and vivid and it affects me emotionally in a way that no other horror writer can. He writes with such incredible empathy. Um, if you'd like a suggestion for an entry point into his writing, I can't fucking help you. It is all so good. I want you to read all of them all at the same time. Are you up for that challenge? You're stuck inside anyway, so you might as well try, right? Anyway, end of gushing intro. Paul and I had a really great chat about the seminal punk slash post-punk slash grunge slash alternative band Husker Du and the solo work of legendary Husker Du member Bob Mould. We also shot the shit about growing up, finding your way in the world, developing your taste, so it was a wide-ranging conversation, really. I know you must be terribly excited to hear it, but tough shit. You've got to listen to me for a while longer. Or rather, I would appreciate it if you would indulge me a bit further, because I want to talk a little bit about children's books. So, Tommy DePaula died this week, and hearing that news made me incredibly sad. For anyone who doesn't know, he was a writer and illustrator mostly of children's books, and most famous for writing the Stregonona books. He was the last living author in a group of children's authors who were really important to me. And just like most of my favorite Christmas songs were written by fellow Jews, most of my favorite children's authors were fellow gays. Authors like Tommy DePaula, Maurice Sendak, Arnold Lovell, James Marshall. And that's an important aside because these guys injected subtle, child-friendly queerness into their books, both implicitly and explicitly. Tommy DePaula's book, Oliver Button is a Sissy, was a prime example of that. But the impact those books had on me went beyond the queer infusions. Those stories are burned on my brain. And the illustrations, too. They're vivid and funny and full of love. Another childhood favorite was Ezra Jack Keats. He was also a Jew and was let's say generously, a sexual question mark. But I digress. 
His books had a profound impact on me. And just after we moved to New York, my husband and I went to a Hanukkah party at the Jewish Museum. A Hanukkah party at the Jewish Museum in New York is fucking peak Jew, by the way. But the party coincided with an Ezra Jack Keats exhibition, and they let us in for free. I was walking around these larger-than-life recreations of my favorite moments from books of his like The Snowy Day and Whistle for Willie and Peter's Chair, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with emotion. I was probably weighed down by the stress of the move, and I was a little bit drunk, but walking into that room just floored me, and I burst into tears. And a huge part of that emotional overload was thinking about these memories of my parents reading to me, of being so small that I could lie on my dad's back and peek over his shoulder while he read those books to me. And thinking back on that makes me realize that it's not just the content of those books that I feel so connected to, it's also the act of being read to. I was so lucky to have parents who read to me constantly and helped me to learn to love reading on my own. It's so fucking important for kids to have that connection. Not only can it instill a love of reading, but it's also this intense, magical connection that never really gets repeated after your childhood. That is, unless you're on the other side of it. So read to your kids, dudes. And if you don't have any, read to other people's kids. That simple act can change their lives. Okay, 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 sorry, enough. Let's get on with the show, shall we? Here comes my chat with Paul Tremblay about Hooster Do and Bob Mould. So, Hooster Do. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and and Bob Mould, but I'm assuming uh, Hooster Do is the beginning. Actually, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions. I don't know okay, which yeah. music you discovered first. Um, so usually the the beginning of every chat is like the origin story. So um, you okay. tell me how you uh, how you came upon this music. Sure. So I, I didn't come across Husker Du slash Bob <laughs> until I want to say sophomore year of college. Okay. Um, I'll I'll back up a little bit. Previously, you say you know I've just always been like a a music fan. You know, music for me, especially as a, as a teenager in high school, starting about midway through middle school was was sort of one of my retreats, one of my safe places. Um, most days I would come home from school because I was very, very short, very skinny, picked on a lot, didn't have uh, very many friends at all. So most days I would come home and lay down on the floor. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a record, you know, stereo record player, giant speakers that I would tent, like I would make like a almost like a tripod and I would lay with my head in between the speakers and I don't know, it started with listening to my, you know, my parents records. Uh, I was the oldest, so I kind of had to, you know, discover everything for myself. And I think my first like real (laughs) jump into music fandom though was Pyromania, Def Leppard. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Seeing that on MTV. I mean, that's how I discovered music for the first, I don't know, basically through middle school and high school. Because again, I really wasn't hanging out with a lot of friends. It wasn't other people to show me music. as what I've sort of found on my own. Oh yeah, I was uh, in seventh grade, sort of a bad mullet, jean jacket, <laughs> Def Leppard pins on my uh, on my jacket. Uh, yeah, so through high school, I sort of you know found my own way. Like still, punk wasn't really a thing for me, just because you know it wasn't as prevalent on MTV as I guess my first foray into harder music was obviously you know, a band like Def Leppard. But I think my first real taste before, you know, before I hit Who's Could Do, sorry, this is a long, boring intro. No, no, um, no. This is, this is the good stuff. This is, yeah. this is what I okay. want. So. <laughs> yeah. 
No, so, you know, brief, brief classic rock, but then uh, junior of high school was the band Living Color. Mm, uh, I, I was to- totally obsessed with Cult of Personality first, the video, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but, but the whole album itself, uh, I, at this point, I, you know, cause I couldn't afford to buy records and records were starting to be phased out. They weren't as cool as, as cassettes, obviously. Um, you know, so I had a Walkman at this point, but also, yeah, I guess I would say I, I transferred over from the big stereo speakers over my head to the Walkman and man, that, that vivid tape, I, I wore out, like I had to buy a second copy cause I had played it so much and, and that like remained like, you know, my favorite record for, you know, uh, until I went, you know, went off to college. Yeah. So when I went to college, um, for me, college was a real sort of blossoming me, you know, having some confidence to become myself and maybe even like who I wanted to be, even though I wasn't sure who that was quite yet. And the people I did become friends with were also music fans, and, you know, and they wanted to work at the school, at the, you know, at the, at the radio station. And, um, you know, so when I started hearing, you know, and this was so 90, 91, 91 when I was a sophomore, I guess. So. You know, we're sort of at the point where, you know, alternative rock is just about to become, you know, a huge mainstream thing with obviously the success of, you know, Nirvana was when everything really blew open. Right. So it was right around that time where I'll, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my friend Weird Jim's room, <laughs> his, his playful nickname. Uh, you know, so Jim, uh, and who is one of my best friends in college. So oh, Jim, when he was in high school, you know, he was at a rural high school in New Hampshire and he was, you know, a punk. He was, you know, dead Kennedys and dead mm-hmm. milkmen. And, you know, we went to a, uh, I remember I went to one of my first, what I would call like, you know, I went to a few concerts by, you know, one or two was like with my parents was like Billy Jewel or something like that. So mm-hmm. I went with Jim to see Red Hot Chili Peppers, Dead Milkmen, and Two Free Stooges was the other band. I, that was like the opening band. Holy shit. Because you know, Jim, Jim knew it. And this was during Mother's Milk. So, mm-hmm. you know, this was before the Chili Peppers kind of sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, because I, I, I still do really like that record. Uh, I'll never forget Jim, you know, because Jim looked like a punk. And like I showed up like in tan pants and like a michigan college sweatshirt even though i went to it you know I, I wasn't a michigan student he's like oh yeah you're gonna get beat up at a show looking like that and i remember being like oh no yeah. <laughs> this isn't what i want yeah yeah <laughs> uh but no it was a wild show it was a great show um so right around that time we were in his room and actually it wasn't a who's could do album that was playing it was bob mould's black sheets of rain mm-hmm. so i'm sure i'm messing up some of the timelines a little bit because that that chili peppers concert was second semester freshman year. So maybe it was next year, but anyway, Jim was a part of my life. Someone in the room was playing uh, Black Sheets of Rain, the last song, Sacrifice, Let There Be Peace. And at the time, it's the end of the song where Bob is just, you know, bit, you know just screaming his head off. Mm. You know, it's a very emotional song, but, you know, having never heard uh, Who's Could Do or Bob sing before, I, I, my initial reaction was like, oh, what's this? This is terrible. <laughs> um, you, know, it's, I, you know, he's just screaming. Yeah. But there's something stuck there. Like, so, I mean, something clicked. Cause you know, I left the room. I, I kept thinking about that, that song, even though I didn't like it, but apparently I, I did. And because of some of the other musical interests, you know, I was like, Oh, so that guy was named Bob Mould. He was in a band called who's could do. Oh, I've somewhat heard of them. And I, you know, I found what I could about who's could do. I think I found a, uh, a Rolling Stone that had done the best 100 albums of the 80s, or maybe it was like the best 100 albums of all time or something. Uh-huh. You know, and, and Zen Arcade was on there. So I, you know, as much as I could, there was obviously no internet, did some research about Who's Could Do, and that, I think it was a winter break of, of sophomore year, I went into Boston, 
and bought New Day Rising was the first album of Who's Screwed that I bought. And I, I was just blown away. I mean, life changing, like, oh, my God, you know, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a band like this. And, you know, and from there, I just worked my way through the catalog. And, that you know, that was the discovery. And it was instantly like, I don't know, it's sort of goofy to talk about like, oh, you know, because I remember being an angel, like, these are my favorite bands. You know, obviously at that age, I stopped calling, I stopped keeping a list of, oh, what are my favorite bands? But, yeah. you know, for, for a long time, you know, there were obviously other bands, but it was always, you know, Who's Could Do was uh, my, my touchstone. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I've, I've followed Bob to Sugar and all his, you know, his, his solo projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never did get to see Who's Could Do live. Obviously, you know, by the time I had heard uh, Black Sheets of Rain had come out, so Who's Could Do was no longer touring, was no longer a band. Yeah. Um, but I have seen... I, yeah, I, I've seen Bob probably between 25 to 30 times live, you know, right. either with Sugar or him solo acoustic or, yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably a rough estimate, but yeah. we'll call it between like 20 or 30 times. I mean, yeah. I've been trying to think of, so I've been a fan of his for just about 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially in the 90s, I was probably seeing him close to twice a year. Yeah, so I'm sure that there was a few years where I didn't see him very often, like during his modulate sort of years <laughs> yeah. where he was experimenting with ambient music. But then, you know, things sort of picked right back up again with, you know, especially with the release of uh, Silver Age. Mm-hmm. What was that, 2010, 2011? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I've seen him a lot anyway, but by far the most I've ever seen, you know, any other performer. Yeah, amazing. Um, like, uh, that, that is a beautiful introduction into the, <laughs> the subject. Um, but just, uh, just back it up a little bit, info. I mean, uh, I, I talk a lot to, to people, um, a kind of recurring theme on this podcast is yeah. that uh, pre and post internet divide and the ways that people found music, the ways that people developed their taste before they had access to literally everything in the entire world. Um, and yeah, that experience of like being the, the oldest child and not really having anybody, you know, any older siblings to kind of hand down music to you and having to grab things off of, uh, MTV, that kind of stuff. I I can totally relate to that. Like, you know, even just catching glimpses of, you know, videos or little snatches of things. We didn't have MTV at my house. So like going to my friend's houses and, and seeing things, um, but that whole experience. And then also I've never really thought about how, I, I guess I take headphones and uh, personal music players for granted. <laughs> just the idea that like probably I'm in, when when did the first Walkmans come out? Like early 80s, something like that. And that was mm-hmm. the first time when you could really have music that was yours privately that you could bring with you. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about your parents complaining about you listening to your right. music out loud or <laughs> any of that kind of stuff. So sowing the seeds with what you had um, available to you to kind of develop your own taste. And then I think it's a pretty common experience to have that explosion going to, to college where you're like finally out on your own. Right. And I think for most well-adjusted adults, high school was a shitty time that everybody <laughs> yeah. is ha- happy to be away from and college um you know isn't necessarily perfect or or happy for everybody but i think it's this like a, a huge part of a transition to adulthood but also just sure like, getting to assert your independence and getting exposed to stuff by your peers by people from like you know different parts of the country different parts of the world and people who come from completely different backgrounds and have a completely different experience so like having that buddy who is you know um you meet in college who turns you right. on to something that's like becomes this defining part of your life is, is so incredible and that's the that was the biggest value that i got from college to, to be perfectly honest yeah i mean it's i mean it's one of the few points in life if you are fortunate enough to be able to go to college i mean it is a 
a chance to literally reset sort of like your peer group mm. without, without it seeming like, you know, you're just like cutting people out of your life kind of thing and, you know, and, and actively trying to meet other people. I mean, it's a literal restart, you know, and for me, it meant every, it's, you know, allowed me to become, you know, who I, I wanted to be, or at least try to become who I wanted to be, you know, I think more importantly helped me, you know, allowed me to discover, you know, more of my passions. Uh, for, for me, that's the great lesson that that sort of stuck with me is, you know, and I, and I hope that more people, you know, hope more people do have that experience. Like the idea that even now, like as, you know, I'm older, obviously, but I don't know. I think going through that, it helps me appreciate being actually being a fan and not that being a loaded, uh, a loaded thing. Uh, like it's okay to like things, which sounds kind of goofy to say, but like, you know, on social media and, and everywhere else where everything can be so examined and so down to, I don't know, microscopic levels. You know, I think people forget, you know, it's okay to enjoy, uh, yeah. you know, to have, you know, to have enjoyment as a part of your consumption. And that's you know, a terrible word to use, but, uh, you know, you know, music, film, and movies. Not that these things shouldn't be, uh, you know, that those things shouldn't be explored, you know, in their meanings and, you know, in the greater cultural, you know, sphere. But at the same time, just as, as a person, as a one-on-one thing, no, it's, it's, it's okay to like things. It's funny. I had a, you know, I, I teach high school now, which is kind of weird because I hate, I hated high school so much as a student. <laughs> it's weird that that's where I, you know, ended up for, you know, my professional life, you know, aside from writing. I, you know, I had a kid say to me, because, you know, I, I, I try to share my passions with my kids. Like my, even though I teach math, you know, I'm not necessarily giving them my books to read, but you know, my room is full of posters. Um, Mostly like, you know, horror posters and stuff. But I've had years where I also like once a week just being the obnoxious old person <laughs> making fun of like the kids music and, you know, in some ways playfully. But I used to put up like tune of the week just so these kids would be exposed to some like older stuff. And, you know, every I have a little tradition or every like the day before Thanksgiving break, I bring in my electric guitar and just, you know, play them some stuff. Um, and, you know, I have one senior say to me, which it was interesting was a senior said it to me, not a freshman who's sort of in the middle of high school hell, you know, mm -hmm. the senior who's, you know, looking forward, you know, he's mature. He's like, it's like, oh, you know, you, you teach math, you write, you, you know, I have to coach at my school to coach basketball. And I, and I do enjoy like shooting, you know, baskets. Uh, he's like, you like, you know, you like music or you like music. He's like, man, you, you know, you're a talented guy. You're like a lot of different, you know, a lot of different things. And I never thought of it as the talented part of it, but I did certainly think of it as, well, you know, you name some of my, my passions and I just always thought, Hey, I, I like that. I want to try to do it. You know, why not like try to live that way? But anyway. And I think ha having that example for kids at that, like really formative, uh, sometimes terrible time in their life where they're just like right. you know, hormones raging, don't know whether they're coming or going and just lots of really dramatic highs and lows and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And, uh, like you said, just ha having somebody to show them an example of like, it's, it's, you know, it, it is okay to have taste and to, um, help to expose other people to your taste. And it may or may not be their thing, but just kind of laying all your cards on the table and saying, this is what I like. And just going to your point about the internet as well, that I think yeah. one of the most damaging things about it is it can be exactly like mean kids in high school where you say like, this right. is what I like. And then everybody shits all over it. And it's like, you know, you really should be able to just say, this is my taste. Taste is subjective. Of course, not everybody is going to like the same things that you like, but just, you know, letting people like things they like and not having to say, <laughs> you know, express how much you disagree with them all the time. Um, right. Uh, and like health, you know, healthy debate is fine. And, and you know, the criticism of art, 
art exists for a reason, but um, absolutely, you know, there's a, there's a balance. Well, it's funny, you know, especially. I mean, I don't know, maybe because it's the teacher part of me. And listen, you know, <laughs> I would never say that, it, like, you know, I'm the awesomest teacher, and I'm always positive because I get cranky. And <laughs> you know, as a math teacher, you kind of have to be cranky sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if you think, if I mean, if anyone you know looks back upon their positive experience, whether it's in you know high school or, or what positive experiences you had in education, whether it be in college or in high school. I think almost invariably people tend to think about a moment of discovery and the moments of discovery are always um, either led by or underpinned by enthusiasm, whether it's enthusiasm from the teacher, you know, probably both enthusiasm from the student and the teacher, you know, it's those moments of, wow, isn't this amazing? Isn't this cool? I mean, that's what makes you, I mean, that's what makes you want to learn something. I mean, obviously again, as we discussed, you know, you, you have to be able to look at things critically, but the initial moment of discovery is always underpinned by enthusiasm. You know, so I don't know. My, my wish is that more people allow themselves that enthusiasm, uh, you mm-hmm. know, particularly if you're coming across something new and you're not sure about it, but you think you might like it, you know, approach it from an enthusiastic point of view first, maybe. Yeah. I mean, even like, even like my, the way I, my way into writing started with uh, my very last class that I took in college because I was a math major, actually a math humanities double major. I sort of fell into the humanities part of it through a long, not exciting story. <laughs> but my my last class that I one of my last classes that I took ended up being an English 101 class essentially. I was a senior in with a bunch of freshmen because I'd never taken a college English class. And the oh the professor was you know really cool. He was sort of the stereotype like Dead Poet Society like for me anyway like enthusiastic. But the thing was he was a punk fan. He loved the Dead Boys, hmm. and so I would be writing papers and comparing you know different stories that I read to Who's Who Do songs or Jane's Addiction or something like that. And he was totally into it. I mean, so his enthusiasm for that actually helped open up reading and becoming a, a reader. Uh, you know, without that, you know, who knows, you know, if I ever would have stumbled upon writing. So I, again, eternally grateful for that, I, you know, that connection, especially between two different art forms and connecting it through enthusiasm. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of enthusiasm, whether it comes from a teacher or your peers or wh- whoever is right. uh, exposing you to, to things that you can become enthusiastic about it's infectious it's like you know having somebody who's teaching you something um in whatever context who is really passionate about it and excited and positive and wants to you know expose you to it because it may be something that you're interested in too i think that that also like all of this to me is a, a big argument for why the opportunity to go to college should be available to anyone because like right. ha- having that high school experience where you might start experiencing these things you might start being exposed to things that could be interesting to you later on in life but you're surrounded by you know the the worst kinds of uh, energy that you're going to be exposed to basically in your yeah. whole life and it's not easy to be uh, a teenager and be uh, proudly enthusiastic about anything, really. I mean, it takes it takes balls to really uh, right. to, to be a teenager and to really show that that kind of unabashed uh, joy. Um, and I think college, when you're separated from that kind of an anxiety inducing situation, you have a, a bit more freedom to really concentrate on the things that you want to learn about and to maybe take those seeds that you've gotten from high school or from your parents or from your friends or wherever and dig in a little bit deeper and think like, what do I want? You know, what do I want to know? What do I want to learn about? 
what do I want to do with my life? All those big questions. And, um, you know, ha- having the freedom to push yourself a little bit further in whatever direction. And, you know, it's not like college is the only way to do that. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, for, for me, it was a, it was a great opportunity to, to really, uh, get exposed to a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds of ideas and art and everything. So, absolutely. So would you say like the, the, uh, kind of punkier side of Husker Du and of Bob Mould, like I, I would say Husker Du to me feels like a band of, of two halves. There's like the hardcore stuff and the right. kind of stuff that was transitioning towards what would become grunge and alternative, like, you know, laying yeah. the groundwork for what came next. Um, Bob Mould has, uh, at least to my ears, his music goes all over the place. Like, you know, the Sugar stuff is much more, at least, you know, there's these big, like, radio-friendly, almost pop hits. Right. And then um, he has done some albums that are really heavy and, like you said, you know, albums that are kind of experimenting <laughs> with uh, dance music and, um, right. yeah, all over the place. Do, do you fall anywhere in particular on that spectrum or is it just like they – you know, I, I, everything uh, that you've you've been able to get from the band and from uh, Bob Mould as a solo artist is good. So, I mean, I definitely fall more, I guess, towards the, I don't know, I mean, a little, I guess, sort of depends on the mood. I mean, so I really, you know, I love New Day Rising is probably still my, my because it was my first, it was my, you know, my favorite, uh, you know, Husker album. Yeah. Um, you know, I do like the tuneful stuff, but at the same time, you know, I love listening to, you know, some of the more hardcore stuff, uh, particularly on Center Arcade. So, I mean, some of it's the mood. Um, I, I definitely, I will freely admit that I wasn't as much into uh, the electronica stuff mm-hmm. that Bob was doing. It wasn't, you know, I would never be like, oh, I'll go back to doing the old stuff. But I, I actually, because when he was doing that, I was sort of in the middle of trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a writer, like right around the same time. So, you know, I appreciated that he was pushing himself as a musician and he didn't want to write the same songs over and over again. For me at that point, I was still very much a fledgling writer, but I'd been writing all these horror short stories. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to try writing like this weird comedy novel, which to me was like a very important step in my writer's life to to figure out that, oh, not every story had to be pigeonholed into something. I was going to whatever story idea I had, I was going to try to write the best story that I could and serve that story. So, you know, even if I haven't liked everything Bob has done, um, I've liked most of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, but I've always appreciated, like, you know, how, you know, how he's, you know, pushed himself in, in different areas. And I've always been a Bob guy. I mean, I like Grant Hart's work with Who's Could Do, but for some reason, I was always more drawn to Bob's, to Bob's voice, his songwriting style. You know, it's funny, like, I, I was thinking, you know, in preparation for this podcast, thinking about, like, the bridge from Def Leppard to, to Who's Could Do. And in some ways, you know, there's, you know, the heavier guitars, you know, heavy guitar pop songs, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, for me as like the 12, 13 year old and even like, you know, the 15, 16 year old music for me was always an escape. I didn't really, you know, it was the MTV video. It was like imagining myself on stage and being, you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, anyone thinking that I was cool. I mean, to me, that was like a big appeal of, of those songs when I, when I was that age. And honestly, some of that I get, I will freely admit some of that is still there. Still, as a 48-year-old man, when I listen to some songs sometimes, I will tell you that the, some of the appeal of listening to a song is imagining myself performing it. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't know, I, I don't think I've ever admitted that in public before. <laughs> no, it's not, not for every song, but I, you know, I, I still do it. Because uh, part of that, 
for me, a part of that is part of my creative life, the fantasy life that I've always had since a kid. You know, I, I think I realized that even though I didn't start messing around with writing until my early 20s, I've always had this fantasy life and even either creating videos for songs in my head or putting myself into these songs. I don't know. I always felt like that was, in retrospect, I think that's great training for, for being a writer or for being a creative person. But to me, I, I think the big switch in Living Color was a part of it was, oh, these songs actually are about something and that, you know, the escape part of it can only really fuel you for so long. And then to me, the, the you know, Huskadur in particular, those songs all, they became to be about reason in, in one way or another for me, even if I couldn't always explain what the reason was like or how those songs made me feel. But it became less about escape, although, you know, that's still there. But I don't know, just like a, a raison d'etre. <laughs> Yeah. Pardon, yeah. pardon my French um, <laughs> or attempt at it. So yeah, anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but that was like a rambly thought I had about the connection to you. You would ask about like, you know, which songs do I connect to? Yeah. But I mean, so I mean, to me, that's been a joy for 30 years. Like as he's gotten older as a, as a performer that I've been able to still connect to, you know, so many of his songs that, that he, that he continues to make now. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, his, his record, I already mentioned Silver Age is amazing. What mm. an amazing record to put out, you know, at the time when he was 50. And even still, his his solo records since then, you know, I always have like, for each one of those, I've found two or three songs that really, you know, sort of speak to me. Not the, Maybe not in the way it did. I don't think it does for anybody, like when you're 21, you know, or 18 or 19, discovering sort of, <laughs> if you're going to call it your reason. But that's okay, too, because, you know, I'm a different person now. And the right. music, you know, what it means to me has sort of evolved as well. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think, you know, uh, uh, any artist who has a career that's, you know, spans whatever, probably pushing 40, yeah, 40, 40 years this point, now, yeah. um, that, you know, s- sustaining uh, a career that long in any fashion is is pretty remarkable, especially for a rock musician. But con- consistently putting out um, albums that you can find stuff that you enjoy. And, and even if it's picking and choosing songs and it's not necessarily like totally devouring whole albums anymore, I think still being able to, to find music that he's, he's making now that you still dig is, is pretty pretty nice um yeah absolutely i mean even like his live show was just about actually barely over a week ago like seven or eight days ago i saw him in in new hampshire it was just him and electric guitar and Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's just cool like even after all these years to still be surprised like i don't think i'd ever seen him perform uh, the song flip your wig which Mm -hmm. you know half of the song is sung by grant hart and he sung grant's parts he's like huh this is really cool. I don't know if I've ever seen him do that and then actually late much later in the set he played never talking to you again which is a grant hart song and I know I've never seen him, at least the times that I've been to his concerts, I've never seen him perform, you know, that song before uh, or, a, or a song that was solely sung by Grant. I don't know. So even though that's not like him creating new music, but, you know, as a performer, it's like, oh, geez, you know, I, obviously Grant passed away, uh, I think, a little over a year ago at this point. Geez, maybe even more because of how quickly time goes. I don't know. It's just fun to be continually surprised, you know. And a show like that where he plays a bunch of songs, obviously, that you know, he still played some ones that he's working on. So you had some new stuff, you know, so there's the comfort, I don't want to say the nostalgia, but the comfort of the songs that you know, but then there was still these things that, you know, surprised you. So, you know, as someone, you know, who just has his eighth novel coming out this summer, it's, I don't know, it's comforting to see someone still capable of, you know, surprising a self-professed fan who, you know, knows his work, you know, and him so well. Um, I don't know, that's inspiring to me. Yeah. Yeah. And also I I was just thinking, you know, kind of talking about people inspiring each other and uh, helping each other to really 
discover uh, art and, and figure out who they are and, and find themselves and just develop their taste. I think that's kind of what the band did for each other too. You know, they, they were kids right. when they met and um, there are all these stories. I mean, reading about this stuff, you know, I, I think I, I said to you that I grew up in St. Paul. So all of the, oh, <laughs> the yeah. their like origin story, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought that they were just a local band. Like I didn't know that anyone knew who they were outside of Minnesota. I was just like, oh yeah, they're just funny. like the guys who are, you know, uh, started this like little local scene. Like them, I felt <laughs> the same way about the replacements too. Like, oh, they're yeah. just like these local guys. Um, but, uh, yeah, just like, uh, them talking about, you know, hanging out in these record stores in St. Paul and Minneapolis. And have you listened to the, um, the podcast, the current podcast that just came, it came out like last year that it's like no. the history of Husker Yeah. Check that out. Really? Oh man. All right. Um, like interviews with all of them. There's stuff with Jello Biafra and, um, Henry Rollins and yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Um, but they're you're just talking about like hanging out and developing, uh, music and stuff. And it, it just sounds like that kind of, camaraderie and finding a, a, a band where they've ended up inspiring so many people and inspiring like whole genres of music. Yeah. And um, it started out in that same kind of way where it's all just like kids spitballing, shooting ideas at each other, introducing each other to stuff and slowly kind of developing this uh, style and, and um, music of their own. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. There was also an interview that I saw with Bob Mulder. who's <laughs> saying that they, uh, the reason that they were so prolific is that it was so cold in Minnesota that they couldn't go outside. And so all they could do was practice. <laughs> um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you hit on something. I mean, that's sort of the, I don't know, the connection to, to most performative arts or just arts in general is, I mean, the essential step of, um, if not mimicry, that's not the word I'm looking for, but I mean, but uh, imitation, excuse me. Yeah. Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> first day back at school after a week off of being cold and sick uh yeah. I, you know in early interviews i've read of them i'm sure you know they talked about oh you know hearing the ramones obviously i mean there's a lot more influence influences on who's and bob in particular but you know i i remember hearing him talk about oh hearing the ramones like we can do songs like that you know so it always starts off with you know some form of, of, of imitation um, and I think in writing, it's it's clearly the same way, or at least it was for me. Like I just tried writing stories that that riffed on you know different writers, you know that I liked. And actually, I, I tried to riff on music quite a bit when I first started. So many of my early stories, and so many of just even stories that have been published have have started with sparks from music. You know, as <laughs> the lifelong wannabe musician mm. that was me, <laughs> you know, sort of sadly found out he was a better writer than he was a musician. <laughs> uh, like my first short story collection, which was published in 2005 by, you know, a small independent publisher called Prime Books. I named it after a Bob song, Compositions for the Young and Old. And yeah, there, I mean, there were a head full of ghosts. My my breakout novel was inspired by Bad Religion song, A Head Full of Ghosts. Hmm. So, I mean, for me, I always go back. I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I've read a ton to, to obviously learn how to write and, you know, be influenced by other writers. But for me, I don't know. There's always something about that music that makes me come back to it for inspiration. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. And like you know, I think a lot of art forms are are linked in that way. That there there's influence that you can draw from uh, all all different uh, corners of the artistic universe. Um, yeah, and being able to and also just like you know being somebody who enjoys playing music who. Uh, 
you know, <laughs> has these fantasies about being a rock star or whatever, like being yeah. able to um, draw from music in your writing, I would imagine that that's a, a nice way to, to feel like you're still connected to that greater uh, musical part of the artistic, artistic universe, even if you're not on stage at Madison Square Garden or wherever. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. I mean, I, and I play guitar. I mean, I... You know, I'm not that great. I'm okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, for me, that part gets to be fun. And it's not as loaded with expectation now that writing is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to have the problem of, you know, publishers wanting books for me. Right. Um, you know, but it's different than like me just, you know, at home banging around with my electric guitar. It's just more like of a free thing. You know, when I first started messing around with both writing and guitar playing, I was at that point, I was in my uh, we'll call it mid twenties. And there was like a few years in the mid nineties, like mid to late nineties where I was sort of like trying to record stuff with the four track. I had a drummer friend. We never, like I never formed a band or never played out live, but we did record a bunch of stuff. I know for me, and you know, I, I discovered that whereas, you know, I would love to create songs. I just really struggle with the lyric side of it, which might sound goofy as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> for me, like, you know, coming up with like semi decent riffs was, Oh, you know, was fine. But, but I found, you know, for me, like writing a story, whether it be a short story or a novel, what I'm good at is living in it, even if I'm not writing it. So, I, yeah, I walk around most of the time. You know, I'm not purposely ignoring people, especially in my house. <laughs> but, you know, I find that, that that story's there. It's it's being written in some ways or our, our ideas are always being worked out. And when I try to write songs that that it's that didn't work for me, like I would never walk around and like I couldn't hear a song that I created in my head or or, or a lyric or something like that. It only works for stories. So I don't know. I think I'm just trying to explain why I, I didn't stick with playing guitar yeah. and then moved to writing instead. Explain yeah. for myself, for the, my self-shame. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, like I said, just still having you know, this uh, musical life that still exists, even if it's not necessarily always on public display, still di- digging into music as, as influences and something you can enjoy and... And all of those things is it pretty cool? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I it's funny. Like there are days when, <laughs> you know, as most writers do, get frustrated. I can easily imagine not writing. Yeah, and those are the days where I'm like really frustrated. Like just imagine, oh, I could just sit on the couch and watch movies or listen to or listen to music. Uh, I have never once imagined or thought of like oh, going through the day without music. I, I just I, I I can't do that. It's just, it's just a part of like my daily, it's just a part of me. I'm either listening to music on the, you know, on my commute or, you know, if I'm walking the dog or, you know, I find a way to, to, to have some music as a part of my day somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I always find it very interesting when people don't really have any interest in music, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it I is weird. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know people who hate chocolate too. So I, I don't know. <laughs> Is, there really is no accounting for taste, um, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like we said, you know, it takes all kinds. Uh, uh, everybody, uh, each their own, I guess. Um, right. Yeah, uh, I uh, I feel very satisfied. I think this was a uh, a nice chat, and we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, um, no, thank you. Hope I didn't uh, blather too much. <laughs> no, no, uh, definitely yeah. not. Well, this thanks. Was, I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, it's just a. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I was. I was joking when I say I was nervous just because like, oh, you know, I've never got to talk, you know, about who's could do or Bob, you know, other than friends, you know, who I proselytize to, obviously. So now yeah. thank you for the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite bands, obviously, or my favorite band, I guess.
Yeah. And I always find that like, you know, one of the reasons I love doing this is that it's a good way to learn stuff about people without doing like a standard biographical interview where it's like, where did you grow up? And, you know, I, I think everybody goes, does those kinds of interviews all the time if they're doing interviews and right. just being able to talk about something else that still exposes something about you, but is uh, more just about the stuff you love and hopefully makes other people interested in the things that you're interested in. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I never told, uh, I don't know if it matters, but I, <laughs> I have a semi-embarrassing like anecdote about trying to get a, an autograph from Bob, like when I was like 23 or 24, like, <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Do you know, like he famously, well, I mean, this was as of like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, he, he probably hasn't changed his mind, but he somewhat famously doesn't do autographs either. Like if you ask, he doesn't do it. Or if, or if he does, if you do give him a pen. Like he'll just scribble. It's a scribble. It's like a, it looks like just a bunch of waves. Right. Nothing else like tight waves. Yeah. So of course, you know, I was in my, like I mentioned, I was, I was young, like 23, 24 or something. And a bunch of us hung out in a show after Providence. It was in Providence, Rhode Island. We hung out after to talk to him. Our big plan was we were going to get Bob to come out to Fellini's pizza with us. <laughs> Cause my, my, my friend, weird Jim worked at Fellini's pizza. Um, <laughs> It is really good pizza. So we tried to get him to come out with us, but he didn't want to go out with a bunch of drunk, you know, 23 year olds. <laughs> um, and then someone said, oh, let's get on. You know, I don't know if it was someone in my group, but for what, someone gave him a pen. who's like autographs. You could tell he didn't want to do it. But the only piece of paper that I had on me in my wallet was my social security card. Because back in 1993, 94 or whatever, you carried your social security card around with you in your wallet. Yeah. I remember doing that. So. He signed the back of my social security card. Just, just you know, the looping scribbles. I mean, so there you go. Legal tender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's incredible. If you're going to get something autographed, make it yeah. a legal document, you know? <laughs> I still have it, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, awesome. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Um, so uh, the new book is out in the summer. Is that right? Yeah, uh, July 7th. It's called Survivor Song. Yeah, it has song in the title. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, yet, yet another link. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thanks so much for making time for me. This was, this was really fun. Yeah, and thank you, Adam. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. All uh, right. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, yeah. Bye. Bye. That was so incredible. I'm so grateful to Paul for making time for me. Please read his work. It's absolutely fantastic. Ugh, fine, I'll tell you where to start. Start with a head full of ghosts. There, are you satisfied? And pre-order Survivor Song while you're at it. Okay? Great. Now, other recommendations. As loyal listeners will know, I saw Chili Gonzalez in Montreal in January before the world exploded, and he was so good. This week, I watched a documentary about him called Shut Up and Play the Piano, and that was also so good. It's a great introduction to his work if you've never heard it, and it also gives a pretty good insight into his personality. He's funny and charming, but also has this monstrous ego, and he can be a total dickhead. It's a really fascinating watch, and if you like Peaches and Feist, they're in it too. So check that out. Also, for anyone who likes dance music, you should check out the online events that clubs and bars are running during lockdown. Elsewhere, which is an amazing club in Brooklyn, if you didn't know that, they did a live stream of a DJ set by Ben UFO on Saturday with a chat room for anyone who was listening. It was so much fun. Ben UFO has impeccable taste in music, so the music was great, but also just club goers having a space to connect with each other and commiserate and talk about the tunes being played. It's obviously not the same thing as being together in person, but it's something 
and it's what we've got for now. So seek out those events. I'm sure there are things happening in other musical genres as well, so you're going to be able to find something no matter what kind of stuff you're into. Okay, dudes, that's it. As always, please, for the love of all that's right and good, follow me on social media at Spark Parade, and then write me a nice review and rate the show five stars, if you please. Other than that, stay home, stay safe, and wash your motherfucking hands. Until next time, bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.